Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Recently, we had a call out asking you, our listeners, what it was you wanted to hear from us. And many of you said you'd like us to get into the question of the United States' relationship with Israel and with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Well, that's all become much more urgent with the deadly violence that's erupted in the Middle East in the last few days, with the United Nations warning it could soon be a full-scale war as Israeli airstrikes rain down on Gaza and Hamas rocket attacks hit Israel as we speak. Many wondered how Joe Biden would respond, and speaking at the White House on Wednesday, he came out to say that he'd just had a very long call with Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and he said that he hoped things would be closing down sooner rather than later. That brought criticism from many, including on his own side, partly for stating that Israel has a right to defend itself when, as Joe Biden put it, you have thousands of rockets flying into your territory. I wanted to speak about all this with Dennis Ross. He was the point man for successive American administrations on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, serving under presidents all the way from George H.W. Bush, Bush the Elder, up to Barack Obama. He's now the star of a new documentary. It's called The Human Factor. And I have to say, it is genuinely a gripping film. It's about the team of US diplomats, led by Ross himself, who were involved in peacemaking efforts that seemed to come tantalisingly close to a breakthrough, including the famous Camp David summit that broke down in the late summer of 2000. Uh, That is one of the most riveting sequences in the films and as you'll hear in our interview Dennis Ross and uh, others of his colleagues still hold Yasser Arafat, the Palestinian leader of the time, responsible for those talks failure. But of course some of Dennis Ross's own colleagues in the American team and other observers around the world believe that actually Israel and actually the United States itself bore their own share of blame. I wanted to talk about all of that, but obviously I wanted to ask him about the current situation and the dreadful images coming out of Israel and out of Gaza. But I began by asking him how he came to be a crucial player in what is often called the world's most intractable conflict. Was that the career Dennis Ross always wanted? I became acutely interested 
in foreign policy issues in no small part because of Vietnam. Uh, the 1967 war, I was a, a freshman in college uh, and I had been a critic as a college student of Vietnam War, not because I was a pacifist, but because I thought the war was a waste. Uh, it made no sense. It didn't, it didn't respond to our needs, our threats, or our interests. Uh, and I felt the Middle East was an area where we did have interests. And here was a case where Vietnam was absorbing all of our attention uh, at a time when we, in the run-up to the war in 67, uh, it made me feel that we were very literally not focused on what we should have been. I went on to graduate school and focused very heavily on foreign policy issues of which the Middle East was one, not necessarily the main one. It was actually more, it was more focused on the Soviets because that was kind of the all encompassing issue. When I went into the, the government, interestingly enough, my responsibilities initially in the Pentagon were more on uh, the Persian Gulf area and Iran. And from that time on, even though I had other responsibilities, this was an issue that was always the one that motivated me the most. And, and I did a lot of work as an arms control negotiator to begin with. And the one thing about arms control negotiations is they're all about abstractions. When I first began dealing with the Arab-Israeli-Israeli-Palestinian issue, I began to meet people, all of whom in one way or other had suffered from the conflict. So it was a conflict with a human face. It was not an abstraction. And I think that, more than anything else, is what created this kind of enduring sense of commitment on my part to try to do something about it. And the film, of course, is called The Human Factor and is very much about how it is anything but abstract, even at the peacemaking level. It comes down to human beings, how you shake a hand, what you wear, what the food is in the room. I mean, it's amazingly direct in that way. I mean, you yourself obviously have your own interest in the subject, passionate interest, as you said. But, and policymakers always say it's in the Middle East is obviously in America's national interest. It's in the country's interest to have peace. But just to go to first principles, why is it in America's interest? Israel, Palestine is very far away from the United States. Why does it actually matter to the people of Kansas whether or not Israelis and Palestinians are at peace or fighting each other? I think American policymakers over the years define the Middle East writ large uh, as a fundamental American national security interest. Now, there were a number of factors that led to that. One, obviously, was oil. Two was the geopolitical centrality of the region, the competition, the, the role it played in the competition, first with the Soviet Union, uh, then dealing with uh, those in the region like Iraq, either of whom could gain potentially leverage over the supply of oil. So there's a, oil was sort of at the root of this for a long time. The geopolitics related to it in some fashion. Then when terrorism began to emerge as much more of a threat, that became an additional factor. The sense for a very long time was that you really couldn't create stability in the Middle East, which was seen as being important to our well-being. Again, getting back to oil, getting back to terror, unless you dealt with what was one of the core conflicts of the region, which was uh, the Arab-Israeli and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, and whether that translated into the body politic here, I think, is another issue. But it certainly translated into presence, sectors of state, and so forth. 
And you have one of your colleagues is actually in the film, uh, Gamal Halal, suggesting that presidents almost can't help themselves. They're just drawn to it, partly because it is such a sort of epic conflict. And I know, you know, Donald Trump. I'm committed to working with Israel and the Palestinians to reach an agreement. But any agreement cannot be imposed by the United States or by any other nation. Thought it's the big, it's the biggest deal of their ears, and therefore that's the big prize. People keep somehow coming back to it, and yet so far it seems as if the current incumbent Joe Biden he is somehow resisting that temptation. And I wonder if it's partly because he has so many miles on the clock. He's seen predecessors get burnt, trying and failing in Middle East peace negotiating, often involving you, Dennis Ross, that, that Joe Biden has come away with the conclusion that, you know what, stay well clear. I do think that his observation over the years and his participation, he's, he's not been distant from this. I do think that everything he's seen and everything that he himself has done has convinced him that this is not a conflict that can be ended anytime soon. The most that can be done is a kind of management of it. But he doesn't want it to become a sink for American attention and for American political capital and resources. So I think there is a kind of view that this is a conflict that we'll be involved with, but it's the worst thing we could do would be to raise expectations by pushing some big initiative that is guaranteed to fail. What we're seeing now in the current uh, conflict is, again, you may want to ignore the Middle East, but it tends not to ignore you. Uh, and if you want to manage it, you're going to have to invest enough in that effort to try to ensure that uh, it doesn't spill over the way we're seeing it spill over right now. This notion that it's not going to be resolved anytime soon, I just want to hear, what you, what, hear you say more about that, because... In the film, The Human Factor, particularly around the period of Camp David in 2000, it does seem as if you had got tantalizingly close. After 14 days of intensive negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians, I have concluded with regret that they will not be able to reach an agreement at this time. It seems to break down over Jerusalem, which is obviously in people's minds now because the current conflagration began in Jerusalem with a series of heavily criticised decisions by the Israeli police there. But in in 2000, and it's recounted in the documentary, it seems as if you'd got Israel to uh, agree to uh, Palestinian sovereignty over parts of Jerusalem, but it broke down specifically over sovereignty over the what Jews and Israelis refer to as the Temple Mount and what Muslims and Palestinians uh, Revere as the noble sanctuary where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is. We saw those scenes there this week with stun grenades and uh, uh, and tear gas going into the Al-Aqsa. Uh, how close did you get in 2000 at that summit in Camp David? And was Jerusalem the deal breaker? I think we became, we came, I'll put it this way, what we did at Camp David was we basically demystified all the issues. We had the most thoroughgoing discussions on Jerusalem and on refugees, the two narrative issues uh, that we had ever had. These were issues that neither side was willing to put on the table or discuss, and we finally did. We came much closer with the Clinton parameters in December, which were uh, five months later. 
The fact is, even on the on the issue that you're raising, we had made a, a compromise proposal that went beyond what we'd done at Camp David. And the compromise proposal was that on the issue of the uh, not just the old city, but the but the religious sites, that we would create a difference between above ground and below ground. Below ground, which is where the dead reality is of the of the temple, uh, Israel would have sovereignty over the western wall. Which is what's the Wailing Wall, which is what's visible, and uh, and the Holies of Holies of which it was connected to underground. On the surface, the the Palestinians would have sovereignty over the platform where uh, where the two mosques are, uh, and there would be an international committee uh, that would determine that the two sides would sit on, but that others would be on. That would determine excavation. So that was actually the way we were going to resolve that issue. And the whole city of Jerusalem, we were going to resolve by following the following principle, what is Jewish will be Israeli, what is Arab will be Palestinian. And we were applying that model to the old city as well, even though because the old city is so small, we said there will need to be a special regime uh, which determines the day-to-day management, but the same principle will apply in terms of who has sovereignty where. The Israelis were prepared to accept this, but Arafat was not. Now, these are hard questions. And as I said to both of them, none of us, no outsider can judge for another person what is at the core of his being, at the core of his sense of national essence. One of your colleagues, Aaron David Miller, says in, in the documentary that he understood, at least at the Camp David stage, why Arafat could not accept that because he had to have the mosque on sovereign Palestinian territory. What you're saying is even a few months later, Al-Aqsa Mosque would have been on Palestinian territory because of this above-ground, below-ground device, and yet even that was not enough for him. The truth is, and you put your finger on it, in the year 2000, we came closer to resolving this than at any other time. Uh, I think the point on Camp David is probably right that Arafat in the end couldn't look like he was conceding sovereignty over the Haram al-Sharif. And we had come up, you know, at Camp David, I came up with a four, with a formula of how about sovereignty belongs to God? You know, this is a unique place on the planet. So let's say sovereignty as a, as a temporal concept doesn't make sense. Sovereignty belongs to God and we'll create, we'll divide the jurisdiction. Uh, Arafat couldn't accept that. And honestly, the Israelis didn't accept it. Barack didn't accept it either. But when we came to the, to the Clinton parameters five months later, then it was accepted by, by Barack and it wasn't accepted by, by Arafat. And when you refer there to Barack, you're not speaking about Barack Obama, you're speaking about Ehud Barak, former prime minister of Israel. Uh, but we are, as you say, a long way away from that now. It did feel in 2000 if the stars were in alignment somehow, where you had a peace-seeking prime minister in Israel, you had a man with the credibility as a national icon in Yasser Arafat, and you had a really deeply engaged American president, and you had this very skilled team, a committed, dedicated team, which you were part of. Even then, it wasn't possible. Does that mean that now we are you know, a million miles away from that, and that even to get just this current crisis resolved, there isn't, or just quieted, there isn't anything like the capacity to do it. The contrast between then and now could not be more profound. The politics on both the Israeli and the Palestinian side couldn't be worse. Uh, the disbelief between the Israeli public and the Palestinian public couldn't be deeper. 
So you're dealing with psychological gaps that are enormous. You're dealing with substantive gaps that are enormous. You're dealing with political circumstances on each side that don't lend themselves at all uh, to trying to resolve this. And on the American side, you know, you have a new administration. You don't have an embedded group of people who have deep institutional memory, who have worked on this issue for a long time, who not only know each other, but know all the players out there. So the context is, is totally different. And as you said earlier, the contrast at this point between how President Clinton defined his role and his own emotional stake and commitment. President Biden comes in and his focus uh, internationally is on Indo, the Indo-Pacific area. How do you compete with China? He sees the Middle East as being an area that, as I said earlier, absorbs a great deal of attention, but doesn't lend itself to much change. So it's not that he won't commit himself to a diplomatic effort, but he wants to approach it in a much more cautious, careful way. And you have to have, I think, the people who've been appointed, they have to be in their positions and they're, and they're not necessarily people, again, who have a long history of dealing with those in the region. So there's a, there's a, a startup cost with this as well. I mean, this notion that at the moment Joe Biden is keeping his distance, some say he's, you know, hands off with this conflict. Uh, Middle East analyst Khalid El-Gindi, who's a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, he, he challenged that in, in quite an interesting way, saying, actually, there, you know, he's anything but hands off. The Americans are heavily involved by just the act of $3.8 billion uh, in U.S., military aid for the Israeli military, uh, you know, blocking language at the Security Council, international resolutions there. They, they, it says uh, Khaled El-Gindi, they are not hands-off. They're actually quite hands-on, but they just won't do the thing that this is required, which is putting pressure on Israel. In other words, Joe Biden may like to think that he's keeping his distance from this, but actually he's involved. He's just not involved in a constructive way. What do you make of that analysis? You know, look, I, I would say that Joe Biden is someone who feels a longstanding commitment to Israel's security and well-being. So that's that is where, in fact, he'll be supportive. What Hollywood is saying is our actions don't fit what the requirements are, and that's something that can be debated. What I would say is, you know, what's the nature of the diplomatic effort right now that ought to be made? How can you try to change the circumstances. My own prescription would be, first, you're going to have to calm down what's happening right now. Uh, we will have to, among other things, we're going to have to work with the Egyptians. The Egyptians have brokered every one of the ceasefires over the last few years between Hamas uh, and Israel. Egypt, obviously, because it borders Gaza, has leverage on Hamas. So we'll have to work with them. Now, if you get beyond this, what's the one new factor in the equation? The one new factor in the equation is that you have a normalization process. Look at what the UAE did. The UAE said, we will completely normalize, but Israel cannot annex. So they created a relationship between what they were doing towards Israel and what Israel, in this case, would not do towards the Palestinians. I think one can think about how do you use a normalization process to stop what I would call the creeping annexation process. It's that creeping annexation process of building outside the settlement blocks that creates uh, the potential to lose the ability to separate Israelis and Palestinians at all. If you want to preserve the two-state outcome, you start by ensuring that you can preserve the option. So how can one take advantage of this potential for normalization of Arabs with Israelis to 
foster certain moves towards the Palestinians and then use those moves to elicit something from the Palestinians. That's a way to take what is a new factor in the region and use it to shape the diplomacy, build the diplomacy, and break the stalemate between Israelis and Palestinians. Now, the, the Biden administration says they want to build uh, on the normalization process. But again, they don't have their people in place. You are going to have to have the Secretary of State involved because those Arab states, as we've already seen, that are thinking about making moves towards Israel will also want to know, well, what do we get from the U.S.? Not just what can the Israelis do as it relates to the Palestinians and maybe how the Palestinians might respond or want things from us, but what will we get from the U.S.? And let's say that Joe Biden, I'm thinking of what you said before, which is you may want to leave the Middle East, but the Middle East won't leave you. And that, you know, Joe Biden may eventually just get drawn in. And let's say he says, I want to put the team back together again. You know, you, uh, Dennis Ross, but all the other characters that feature in this new documentary. I wonder if you would do it again the way you did it last time, or would you do it differently now? And let me give you a specific example. Uh, the Israeli director of this riveting documentary, Draw Morer, asks you about the fact that almost all the US negotiating team were Jewish Americans, uh, including you, uh, and that inevitably informed your view of the conflict. Um, do you think that's true? Was that right, do you think? What guided not just me, but the other members of this team uh, was a deep abiding commitment and a belief that it was important to achieve peace for both sides. You know, I, I often drew the contrast when the Bush 43 came in, uh, they walked away. Uh, and they walked away because nobody cared about it. No one had a passion for it. We did have that, that passion for it. So much of the time I spent was educating each, each leader to the other. The essence of mediation is, in a sense, getting each side to understand that if they want their needs addressed, they're going to have to address the needs of the other side. I spent an enormous amount of my time. And the hardest part of being a mediator is after you've demonstrated to each side that you understand what their needs are by constantly going over it and then finally saying, okay, if we're going to get those needs addressed, then we're going to have to address the needs of the other side. This is like the most thankless task of a mediator because each side wants you to focus on them. An effective mediator is someone who fundamentally is in the end able to address what each side needs, not what they want, but what they need. Now, does that mean I wouldn't learn lessons? For me, it, this was a unique group, partly because they had all spent their lives invested in the issue. You know, whether you can produce similar people who, who might be more diverse in terms of their, their identity and background, uh, that might be possible. The makeup of the team could be one thing. One lesson I would learn more generally is once you get in a position where you are starting to deal with the more fundamental political questions that you have to resolve, what we should have done, this is a lesson I learned and I learned it too late, we should not have gone to, to Camp David uh, unless we had required each side publicly in advance to prepare their publics for the fact that they were going to have to make compromises on the core issues. 
I began by saying that listeners had been asking us a lot about the US relationship uh, with the conflict. And and since we've been talking just a moment ago about neutrality, uh, several have wondered whether or not the United States ever can really be a neutral or honest broker in this. And then particularly several were asking about Republican presidents, whether they particularly uh, are unable to be neutral, not because they're listening to Jewish voters who historically have, uh, have aligned with the Democratic Party, but actually listening to Christian evangelicals who have a very strong uh, relationship and attachment to the idea of Israel, born partly out of theology. And it was partly them that, for example, Donald Trump had in mind when he moved the United States Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. This is nothing more or less than a recognition of reality. It is also the right thing to do. What's your assessment of that? Is the United States now unable ever to really be that kind of honest broker? It's, it's interesting that, you know, the, the pendulum has swung. Uh, for years and years and years, it was the Democrats who were always much more sympathetic to the Israelis and the Republicans who were always, in a sense, much less so. Uh, and uh, it was the Republicans who were always the hardest uh, on Israel. Eisenhower, people forget that Nixon actually put a lot of pressure the first week of the 73 war. Uh, the U.S. didn't provide any material support uh, to the Israelis or uh, close to nothing. Only when uh, the Security Council resolution was blocked by the Soviets with Egyptian support, one week into the conflict, did we switch. Uh, later on, it was uh, George H.W. Bush. Now you have the image that with President Obama, it was different. And obviously with Trump, it was different. It's true back, the evangelicals became much more prominent to the Republican Party starting in the 1980s. If you have a president that at some point, unlike today, feels this is something they want to be seen as resolving, I'm not sure it matters whether they're a Republican or a Democrat. The, the real issue will be, do they think that this is an issue that they can resolve? You use the word rightness. Uh, do they think that the conditions are there, that they can be the ones to, to build on this? Uh, I think that may be the more important issue, but also I think you're, it's a fair issue. What are the politics of this issue like to be over time? And how much is that likely to affect the readiness to pursue uh, dealing with this issue? If it's seen not as a political winner, that may also obviously diminish the, the interest, but something else may well diminish the interest. The fact that, that A, we're much less dependent on oil, and B, we're transitioning over time away from oil, will that also diminish the interest uh, of, of working on this issue? So I think there's a variety of factors that may not be only political. Let's say, final question, let's say... President Biden calls you in and says, well, I wanted to steer clear of this, but it's obvious I can't because of what's going on now. Uh, Dennis Ross, you have worked on this for more than three decades. Can peace be possible? Can it be done? Uh, or can it own, this conflict only ever be just managed? Uh, what's your advice to him if he asks you that question? It can be done. There needs to be a serious effort at educating for peace on all sides. There needs to be a recognition that uh, it's in both sides' interests. 
Israelis need to see that ultimately, if they want to remain a Jewish democratic state, there needs to be a two-state outcome. Palestinians need to see that uh, Israel is not going anyplace and its character is not going to be changed. Uh, that these two national movements competing for the same space in the end can coexist, but the only way to coexist is by living in two states for two peoples. I, I do believe it can happen. I just think we're at an extremely low ebb right now. Uh, I think there probably does have to be a generational change. Between now and then, I think we have to try to work to create the conditions that makes peace possible and that changes the perspective. Again, I come back to the normalization process. You know, there are a lot of people in the region who aspire to live a much more normal life. Uh, and it's possible. Uh, now, that's part of the larger struggle in the region, too. That's not just Israelis and Palestinians. That's what Iran is trying to do. Dealing with creating a sense of possibility for the future. Economics are not a substitute for political identity, but you're looking at trying to create a, a set of realities that gives everybody a stake uh, in living together, recognizing each other, respecting each other, uh, and producing, as I said, in the case of Israelis and Palestinians, two states for two peoples based on the principle that you've had two national movements competing for the same space. And if he asked you, to do it, would you say yes or no? Well, he's not going to ask me to do it. And, and there's a lot of people who, uh, who are younger who are anxious to do it. I'm quite happy to sort of help out informally on the side. I will always try to do whatever I can to be helpful. Dennis Ross, thanks so much for talking to us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that is all from me for this week. Now, if you remember, I mentioned at the end of last week's show that to mark The Guardian's 200th birthday this month, we have some editorial treats for you, showcasing the best of two centuries of Guardian journalism. Make sure to listen in to next Wednesday's episode of the UK Politics Weekly podcast, where Heather Stewart will be gathering a group of her predecessors it's like those episodes of Doctor Who when all the previous Doctors gather in one room. They are all Guardian political editors who over the last few decades have covered some of the biggest stories to hit Westminster and beyond. There will be lots of insight and quite a few stories. So do make a note of that. For now, though, I say goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please stay safe and thanks, as always, for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.